Wow, what a lovely day it is today, huh? We're in the 40s now, 41 degrees out at uh, the airport. Humidity is way down at 49%. Southwest wind has come down to 10 miles an hour. We have 10 miles of glorious visibility. Thanks for tuning in. This is KMXT Kodiak 100.1 FM. Live on the web, kmxt.org. Also available on the KMXT app, which you can add to your phone if you haven't done so already. Let's see, is it going to stay like this, you think? It's supposed to get increasingly cloudy with southwest winds 20 to 30 down to 15, but some gusts to 40 miles an hour. Maybe rain and snow moving in tonight before 3 in the morning, then it'll switch to rain. A low around 32, south winds 10 to 15, becoming southeast 15 to 20. Could gust as high as 30 tomorrow with a 90% chance of some snow coming down, maybe an inch. Tonight, tomorrow, chance of rain showers before 9 in the morning, snow showers after that. Sunny, but a high near 41 again. Southwest winds 20 to 30, gusting as high as 35. Only a 20% chance of snow tomorrow. Sunday, sunny with a high near 38. West winds 15 to 25, some gusts to 40 miles an hour, so it looks like it'll be a splendid weekend. We have more information about the marine forecast, which will come up during the Island Messenger. It's a gale warning in Chiniac Bay today and a gale warning in Marmot Bay today as well. NPR News headlines coming up right now. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The five former Memphis police officers charged in connection with the killing of Tyree Nichols last month are pleading not guilty. They made their first court appearance today as relatives of the black motorists they're charged with fatally beating looked on. NPR's Adrian Florido has more from today's arraignment. In their first court appearance since their arrest last month, the five former officers stood side by side but did not speak. Their lawyers entered pleas of not guilty on their behalf to charges of second-degree murder, assault, official oppression, and other felonies. After the hearing, Tyree Nichols's mother, Rovon Wells, called it the beginning of the process of justice. She said that inside the courtroom, none of the defendants had looked her in the face. So they're going to see me at every court date, <laughs> everyone, exactly. and um, until we get justice for my son. Lawyers for some of the former officers also spoke, promising to mount vigorous defenses. All five men are free on bail. Their next court date is May 1st. Adrian Florido, NPR News. The Biden administration says more federal resources are on the way to help the residents of East Palestine, Ohio, where a train carrying toxic chemicals derailed and a fire broke out some two weeks ago. Here's NPR's David Shaper. White House officials say the Department of Health and Human Services and the CDC are sending in medical personnel and toxicologists to conduct public health testing and assessments in and around East Palestine, Ohio, where the train derailed and caught fire. Thousands of people were evacuated while authorities drained and burned off toxic chemicals from overturned tank cars. EPA officials remain on the scene testing soil and groundwater for toxic chemicals. And the head of the Federal Railroad Administration, Amit Bose, will assess the crash site next week. Administration officials say there will also be public information meetings weekly beginning next Thursday and continuing until they are no longer needed. David Shaper, NPR News. 
In the ongoing probe into the handling of classified documents, an advisor to former Vice President Mike Pence says the Justice Department conducted a thorough and unrestricted search of the office of Pence's think tank, Advancing American Freedom. The advisor, Devin O'Malley, says agents did not find any classified documents during the consensual search, but they did take one binder with several previously redacted documents. Those records are believed to be from Pence's 2020 debate preparations. The U.S. military confirms it carried out a helicopter raid in northeast Syria last night that killed a senior ISIS leader, Hamza al-Hamzi. It also says several American service members were wounded. Separately, an opposition war monitor as well as local media are reporting that an ISIS attack today south of the Syrian town of Sukhna killed dozens of civilians. On Wall Street, the Dow closes up 129 points, ending the day at 33,826. This is NPR News. NPR News is presentada a usted en parte por la Providence Kodiak Island Centro de Asoramiento. Para una cita o más información, por favor llama al 907-481-2400. Thank you. It's about four and a half minutes afternoon. Good afternoon. Mike Wall sitting in for the KMXD News Department. A Kodiak-based seafood processing vessel has been fined over $200,000 by the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration. KMXD's Brian Venois reports it's the latest in a decade of health and safety violations aboard the vessel. According to the United States Department of Labor, the investigation into the Pacific Processor, a 169-foot factory fishing vessel, began in July of last year while it was docked in Kodiak. Members of the U.S. Coast Guard in Seattle also assisted in the investigation in October. The feds cited the vessel for numerous sanitation violations, including murky brown water in the ship's drinking tanks, serving expired food to crew, and fish processing water leaking into dry food storage and dining areas. Other safety violations included electrical hazards such as damaged equipment, broken outlets, outlets near water, and exposed wires as well as no forms of fire suppression. According to OSHA, Chris Saboris is the owner of East West Seafoods, which owns the Pacific Processor. Saboris is no stranger to OSHA violations. Similar problems have been found on the Pacific Processor in 2012, 2014, and 2018, the latter of which included an ammonia leak. According to a Department of Labor press release, federal inspectors have documented a decade's worth of, quote, disgusting and dangerous conditions aboard the vessel. This isn't the first time Saboris and East-West Seafoods have faced fines either. The company was charged $50,000 in five years probation for dumping raw sewage and oily bilge water in Chiniac Bay in 2017. Saboris declined to comment when contacted by phone on Thursday. In Kodiak, I'm Brian Venois. The Iron Dog snow machine race got underway this morning in Big Lake. The pro-class field of 25 teams includes defending champions Tyler Ackelstad and Nick Olstad, who also won the race in 2020, Chris Oles and Mike Morgan, who won the Iron Dog in 2018 and 19. The only other past champion in the race is 58-year-old Todd Palin, who was on a winning team five times, first in 1995, most recently in 2007. Hilary Gossett and Ashley Wood of Wasilla are the only women's team, while the Midwest duo of Leah Bauer and Jacob Dolly are the only mixed team. Progress riders are scheduled to begin 
or they did hit the trail at 10 o'clock this morning. The race covers over 2,500 miles heading from Big Lake over the Alaska Range to the Yukon and Bering Sea Coast, where riders then loop to Kotzebue before reaching the halfway point at Nome, where they turn around and retrace trail and finish back at Big Lake. Thousands of Matsu Burrow students have now gone without bus service for more than two weeks, and there's still no end in sight. Bus drivers continue to strike over their contract. The company that employs them says it won't return to negotiations for at least a week. Families caught in the middle, for families caught in the middle, it's becoming a big problem. Alaska Public Media's Wesley Early reports from Wednesday's crowded school board meeting. Kent Scheibel is a father of two and told the school board that the strike has had a huge impact on his family. It's been really rough on us. My wife had to, you know, resign from her job. And we went down to one income because of no child care available and getting our kids to and from school. Scheibel was among dozens of parents, bus drivers, and community members who packed the school board meeting. They told the board of issues ranging from complicated carpools to access for special needs students to safety on the buses. Most who testified blamed the operator of the buses, Durham School Services, for the ongoing strike. That included Kenneth McClamrock, one of many drivers decked out in bright chartreuse safety vests. We're told by our dispatch from Durham, warning lights come on to the dash, your check engine comes on, your ABS comes on, your wrench in the triangle comes on. Keep driving. Keep going as long as your gauges look good. We drive until the buses shut down. The driver's strike started January 31st, and contract negotiations came to a halt last week when Durham officials abruptly ended a negotiations meeting after presenting their last best offer to the union. An email from regional Durham official Will Zimmerman to the union suggested meeting again, quote, in a week or two to learn if setting a new bargaining date might be fruitful, unquote. That means six to 7,000 of the district students will continue to have no bus service indefinitely. Matsu Superintendent Randy Trainey says the district is in an impossible spot. Community members have called for the district to terminate the contract with Durham, but Trainey says it's not that simple and it wouldn't immediately end the strike. If magically another contractor came in like magic, like literally with magic, and they had 160 buses and you'd still be negotiating a contract with a new place. He also says there could be legal issues with the abrupt cancellation of the contract, and the school district may not seem like a good place for other contractors if they canceled a 10-year contract six months in. Even before the strike, Durham had been the subject of controversy with rolling bus cancellations and failure to get proper permits before they began operating in the Matsu. Edward Flavin, spokesman for Durham parent company National Express, says the company has been working with the school district to ensure it gets the proper permits. In a statement, Flavin wrote, quote, We were new to the state of Alaska when we started operations last year and worked quickly to understand and comply with all that is required to operate here, unquote. Flavin did not respond to questions about bus safety complaints. Trainee says the district can't interfere with the contract negotiations directly, and there's not a lot it can do to hold Durham accountable. The way that we can hold Durham accountable is through the contract. That is our mechanism. At the meeting, Trainee presented a list of alternative transportation options. The suggestions included reconfiguring bus services to have longer routes and fewer buses, and opening school earlier and later in the day to better work with parent work schedules. Other suggestions were providing gas carts to families who now have to transport their kids, or getting rid of busing altogether. I'm sure everybody has an idea they hate on this list. Um, the idea was to get 
information out there for you all to think about. In the meantime, parents will have to contend with difficult transportation arrangements as the strike continues on. Parent Audrey White says she's been driving six kids to school, up from her usual three, to help friends. She says she's concerned over safety issues and access for students. I have a special needs son who, according to his IEP, sorry, is supposed to have services and doesn't. But with everything that I am finding out that the bus safety and my brother who drives buses down in the States, I wouldn't put my son or my daughter back on those buses until they're fixed. During the strike, district officials say 2% of students have been absent and the district is seeing six to seven students a day transferring out of a Matsu school. Reporting in Palmer, I'm Wesley Early. By the beginning of next school year, the Anchorage School District says it intends to completely end its practice of locking away students with behavioral issues. Practices called seclusion in educational policy, that and the practice of physical restraint, were the subjects of a two-year investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice that led up to a legal sentiment, settlement announced yesterday. Alaska Public Media's Jeremy Shea has more. The settlement commits the district to a three-year plan to eliminate seclusion and improve its practices around restraint. The Justice Department says the school district repeatedly and inappropriately secluded and restrained students with disabilities, resulting in illegal discrimination. These practices are supposed to be limited to emergency situations, but the Justice Department says the district used them to address student behavior often enough that some students lost a lot of instructional time. The Justice Department says some Anchorage students who were subjected to seclusion hurt themselves and expressed suicidal ideation. During a news conference Thursday, Anchorage Superintendent Jarrett Bryant addressed the Justice Department's conclusions. The district denies and refutes the claim that ASD was discriminating on the basis of disability. But regardless, we do completely agree with the DOJ that there are better alternatives to seclusion and better ways to implement restraint than was happening in the district for many years. Tarlisha Wayne, Senior Director of Special Education for the district, described what some of the existing purpose-built seclusion rooms look like. There's a room that has a door as well as a lock. At our sites, there are also cameras. The room does not have anything in it as it relates to furniture or anything um, as it relates to that. It is just a, a, uh, a small space for a student who has posed imminent danger towards themselves or others. Under the old seclusion policies, she says staff is supposed to be right outside, monitoring the student's safety and needs. She says a student is only supposed to be locked up until the imminent danger has passed. Those times could range anywhere from 15 to 30 seconds to um, several minutes. Um, It all depends on how escalated the student is and if we're able to um, assist that student with calming down. Federal investigators base their conclusions off of reviews of policies, procedures, incident reports, and interviews with district employees. Bryant says Anchorage was one of more than 40 school districts across the country that the Justice Department investigated. It's led to at least five other similar settlements since 2017. Many of the reforms in the settlement are aimed at four specific schools, Kassoon Elementary, Lake Hood Elementary, William Tyson Elementary, and the Whaley School. These schools all have programs for students with special needs and challenging behavioral issues. In a memo, an attorney for the school district noted that these schools used seclusion so often that they were national outliers in the data. Bryant says other commitments in the settlement include dismantling seclusion rooms, staff training on other ways to manage students' behavior, and creating a new staff position responsible for implementing, documenting, and monitoring compliance with the settlement agreement. 
the vision is to move in a new direction and to move away from the practices of seclusion and to dramatically reform restraints. So we need to prioritize investing in training and whatever it takes to ensure that staff understand what their new tools and their toolbox will be to help students in distress. The district says that someone has already been hired for the new position of Assistant Director of Intensive Behavior Supports. Her professional background is in special education, mental health, and behavior. The district also launched a webpage with more information about the settlement and its seclusion and restraint practices. The site includes a contact email that is specifically for questions and comments about these practices. In Anchorage, I'm Jeremy Shea. Well, the Super Bowl is over. It was a weekend filled with uh, good entertainment, a lot of calories, but anything good, because there anything good that could come out of it. How the Super Bowl could power your next flight. That story and more on H2O Radio's Weekly News Report. I'm Jamie Sudler. I'm Franny Halprin, and it's This Week in Water. Chile has been suffering devastating wildfires this month. So far, nearly one million acres have burned, 26 people have died, thousands have been injured, and many left homeless. Central Chile has been plagued by a 13-year mega drought, and its interior minister suggested the fires should serve as a wake-up call about the climate emergency. Yet in the midst of another global warming-induced disaster, some big oil companies announced they were retreating from climate goals that they had set, even while they made record profits last year. BP said it was reducing its pledge to limit their operations' effects on climate change and, as the news site Vox writes, doubling down on fossil fuels. The company was the first to announce plans to cut emissions up to 40% by the end of this decade, but now has scaled that back to as little as 20%. ExxonMobil is now abandoning its heavily publicized efforts to make environmentally safe fuels from algae, and despite doubling its profits in 2022, Shell will reduce its investment in renewables and other carbon reduction strategies to less than half of what it invests in oil and gas. According to the UN, fossil fuels, including coal, oil and gas, are by far the biggest contributor to climate change, accounting for more than 75% of global greenhouse gas emissions. The interest in deep sea mining for minerals is growing rapidly because of the demand for metals such as copper, cobalt, and gold, among others, to be used in batteries and electronics. Some companies have plans to use large robots to scrape the ocean floor, similar to strip mining on land, that could affect not only the seabed, but also much more of the marine environment, with plumes of sediment and harmful noise. The Canadian government announced last week that it would not allow seabed mining in its waters without rigorous regulations, and that it will urge that new rules be put in place in international waters. There's been much opposition to deep-sea mining, citing a lack of research about its potential harm. Species and deep ecosystems have adapted to their conditions and are extremely vulnerable to human interference. Scientists have warned that sediment plumes from deep-sea mining might spread for hundreds of miles, exposing marine life to toxins. In addition to Canada, France, Germany, Spain, New Zealand, Costa Rica, and Chile have called for a moratorium, or at least a pause, on deep-sea mining. As global temperatures rise, glaciers around the planet are melting and creating lakes where there was once ice. 
The massive pools are kept in place by dams of ice and rock, but prolonged high temperatures or an abrupt heat wave could cause them to rupture, sending rock, ice, and water cascading downhill. According to a new study led by Newcastle University, these so-called glacial lake outburst floods threaten 15 million people worldwide, where hydroplants, buildings, roads, and homes downstream could be crushed with little warning to prepare. The number of glacial lakes has grown rapidly since 1990 because of climate change, as has the number of people living in harm's way. The study found that more than half of vulnerable populations are in just four countries, India, Pakistan, Peru, and China. And while mountainous areas in Asia had the highest potential for flood impacts, the authors say Peru and Bolivia are areas of concern because of a lack of research in those countries. And finally, fans who attended this year's Super Bowl will have chowed down a lot of chicken wings, burgers, and french fries. And while that greasy food may not do much for waistlines, the oil it's cooked in won't go to waste, It could be fuel for future airline flights. As Fast Company reports, Finnish refiner Neste collected the leftover fryer oil from a pregame tailgate party with more than 50 local food vendors and will transform it into so-called sustainable aviation fuel, or SAF. SAF is made from oils, greases, and fats, as well as municipal waste and non-food crops. Current aircraft can blend 50% SAF and jet fuel without modifications, resulting in about an 80% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. The estimated 1,000 gallons of cooking oil used to feed the fans at the Super Bowl will become feed stock for Neste's refining operations. After the game, the oil will travel by ship to their refineries in Finland, the Netherlands, or Singapore to be used at one of those airports or returned to the U.S., where it's currently supplying carriers at San Francisco International, including Alaska, Delta and United Airlines. SAF is expensive to produce, so only accounts for less than 1% of aviation fuel. But that number could take off as the industry moves to meet its net zero emission goals by 2050. That's it for This Week in Water, which is sponsored today by our contributary 12-year-old Ainsley Cronin of Colorado. Ainsley said, I support H2O Radio because the stories help me connect with nature, the planet, and our precious water resource. Thanks for listening, Ainsley. See you next week. have to feel guilty about eating french fries during the Super Bowl. I guess that's what I take out of that. Marketplace. Stocks open lower. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser with the Marketplace Minute. Traders are worried the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates higher than they've been expecting. The Fed is making it more expensive to borrow to cool inflation. Higher rates make stocks less attractive as safer bonds pay more. The New York Fed says credit card balances grew $61 billion in the last three months of 2022, the biggest jump ever recorded in the New York Fed's data going back to 1999. A study in the scientific journal Nature Energy says as many as 141 million people could be pushed into poverty because of Russia's war in Ukraine as the war causes energy and some food prices to spike. The report says government relief payments could help. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser with the Marketplace Minute. And 
Okodiak, and welcome to the February 17th edition of Island Byways. I'm Pam Foreman. This weekend is one of my all-time favorite citizen science projects, the Great Backyard Bird Count. There are so many reasons to like this event. It's easy to participate, even for beginning birders. All ages can participate. You can be an experienced alpine hiker or a homebound person with a view of your backyard or bird feeders. It's a scientifically important event. Data gathered here by people like you and me is used by researchers to measure the health of the bird populations worldwide. Pretty cool. You could spend as little as one 15-minute period watching, counting, and identifying birds over the next four days. This is a great activity for the whole family, from grandparents down to the little ones. There are some great tools you can use, too, some right on your phone. The first is called Merlin Bird ID. That's Merlin, M-E-R-L-I-N. This app will not only help you identify the birds you're seeing, but it will record your bird sighting to the online worldwide database. Bada bing, bada boom, you're done. To find out more about the Great Backyard Bird Count, go to birdcount.org. The bird count goes through Monday. Have fun. Another activity you can participate in this weekend is the KMXT online silent auction. There's a link to the auction on kmxt.org. Just scroll down until you see the orange button. You'll find something for everyone in the auction. How about a private event at Bella Bronze Spa or handcrafted earrings or a one-to-one art class where Bonnie Diller teaches you how to draw? Head on over to kmxt.org and look for the orange auction button. Register, then let the fun begin. The auction runs until 9 p.m. on Sunday, February 19th. Good luck bidding. And that's it for Island Byways this week. Have fun and stay safe out there. Thanks for listening. This is the Island Messenger, a look at personal messages the weather, and community announcements. 41 beautiful sunny degrees outside right now at the airport. 49% humidity, a southwest wind at 10 miles an hour blowing, 10 miles of visibility. Increasing clouds in Kodiak this afternoon with a high near 37. West winds 20 to 30, down to 5 to 15 later. Good gusts as high as 40, though. Tonight, snow and rain between 7 and 4. Then a chance of rain after that. Low around 32 tonight. Southwest winds 5 to 10, becoming southeast 15 to 20. With gusts to 30, 90% chance of snow and rain tonight. Tomorrow, a chance of rain showers before 10 in the morning, then slight chance of snow after that. Cloudy skies gradually becoming mostly sunny with a high near 41. East winds 10 to 20, becoming southwest 20 to 40, 20 to 30 in the morning with gusts to 35, 40% chance of snow, rain tomorrow. Uh, it's the 17th of February, 8.34, the sun came up, 6.13, sun goes down, 9 hours and 38 minutes of daylight today. Still almost a 5-minute daylight gain, 52 was the high, 1986, minus 8 in 1982 was the record low. The synopsis for the North Gulf Coast and Kodiak Island water is issued at 345 this morning. A 997 millibar load, 50 nautical miles southwest of Middleton Island, moves to 100 nautical miles east of Middleton Island at 1,001 millibars this afternoon and then moves inland. Another front enters the western Gulf tonight. A 997 millibar low forms 80 nautical miles north of Kodiak tomorrow morning and then moves over Prince William Sound at 998 millibar, 999 millibars tomorrow afternoon. 
Gale warning today, Chiniac Bay. West winds 35, diminishing to 15 or less this afternoon. Seven foot seas down to four feet this afternoon. South 10, becoming southeast 20 overnight. Seas building to six feet snow and rain. Tomorrow, southwest 35 foot seas. Marmot Bay today, Gale warning. West winds 40, diminishing to 15 this afternoon. Eight foot seas down to three foot late. South winds 20 knots, become east 25 after midnight tonight, with three foot seas building to seven feet after midnight. Southwest winds 25 knots, six foot seas tomorrow. Gale warning today and tomorrow in the Shalikov Strait. Southwest winds of 35 diminished to 25, 20 this afternoon with 11 foot seas down to 7 feet. Southwest 15 becoming east 25 overnight, 5 foot seas, rain and snow. Southwest 40 seas of 15 feet on Saturday. Tides in the Kodiak District, we had a high tide about an hour ago, so our low tide's at 616 tonight, minus 0.9 tenths of a foot. The evening high tides at just before 1 o'clock, about a 7-footer. The west side tide in Larson Bay happened about 35 minutes ago, 14-footer. The low tide's at 644. Tonight, minus 1.8 feet, and the early morning high tide's at 114, 12.3 feet. Cedar Citizens are holding a regularly scheduled board meeting at 1 o'clock today in the center's multi-purpose room. It's open to the public. If you'd like to attend or have questions, 486-6181. Hospital Auxiliary will be holding their monthly meeting tomorrow at the hospital in the Pyramid Room, first floor, beginning at 10 o'clock. They'll include a discussion about scholarships, volunteering, and other business matters. All members of the public are welcome to attend. Board of Education will be participating in a board workshop for the budget presentation coming up on tomorrow. Uh, That's not the budget, but they're working on it tomorrow at 10 o'clock and 10 to 2 in the district conference room. Meeting documents and forth are available on board docs. Call Trinity 486-7566 because there is a school board meeting as well on on Monday night at 6.30, same place, streamed through Blue Jeans and broadcast live here on KMXT. You can call Trinity for that as well for the information about the board meeting, 486-7566. Kodiak Public Broadcasting Board of Directors meets for their regularly scheduled monthly meeting Tuesday night at 6 o'clock here at KMXT. It's open to the public. If you want to sit in, you can get a Zoom link from, from us. Call us up, 486-3181, if you don't want to come in person. It's that time of year again. Time for the KMXT silent online auction. And we started out of the bid at $1, $1, $1, $2, $10. Hey, better, better, better swing. I got a $17, no, $18. No, 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 no. Wait a minute. It's an online auction. Bidders view a photo of the item along with a brief description and make their bids from their computer or their phone. A wide range of amazing items are up for bid from seafood to fine art. It's a fun way to support your local public radio station. Oh, you gotta be kidding me. Bitters bidding with a clickety-clackety-clack in the bathroom and the slippers and the reclinomatic chair? Sorry, Mr. Auctioneer. The silent auction is more casual. You go to kmxt.org, you make your bid, then check on it later, and possibly bid again. At the end of the auction, the highest bidders win, along with KMXT. Online bidding begins at 6 a.m. on Friday, February 17th. Change that to began at 6 a.m. today, and it's well underway. There's a lot of great stuff. You have a couple more days to participate in it. It looks like there's a lot of people online actually checking things out. So uh, if you have the time, go check it out, see what we have, and uh, make a bid.
It'll be a fun way to end your weekend, knowing that you're the winner at 9 o'clock Sunday night.